what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, Mm. brothers or something like that. And have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get Mm. a German shepherd or a Dutch shepherd from is House Hamburg shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs- mm-hmm. Because we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs yep. will be met by Einswick Dog Quip. Oh, the buffet himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars, all that training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah. You'll be yep. able to get that from Einswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up north, further north yep. in, in North America yep. and go and see old mate Mach Le Point. Yep. And get everything from canine dynamics. Oh, canine dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah. I can get that from canine dynamics. Yep. From in North America. Mm -hmm. There is one part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benway. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. (laughs) I'm going (laughs) to get a play and train Mm -hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia as well. Ashland, Ashland, Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both areas. Yeah. I can be either one of those Mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home, train that dog. Well, you're sipping- Cafe just, lattes. Just, just gallivanting yeah. all over Gallivanting. The <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. In studio and New South Wales has opened up to the world. Yep. (laughs) Our highest case numbers ever and all of our restrictions gone. But Uncle Dom has allowed us not to wear face masks in most places. Yep. The filthy unvaccinated can now play with the vaccinated. (laughs) We're allowed to mingle again. (laughs) Hey, uh, sir, can't help but notice you have a very beautiful new screen above your computer there. I do. Before I say that, I just have to add that I'm joking about the filthy unvaccinated because some people might hear that and not be vaccinated and trigger over it. So I don't care if you are vaccinated or vaccinated. Either way, that's fine with me. Yeah. So, yeah, 
But yes, I do have an ice cream. Thank you, Patreon. Thank you, Patreon. So what we've got is we've got a little arm on our desk. It's like a computer monitor arm, and we've got this thing called an espresso display. So now what that does is when Pat and I are doing Zoom calls together or we've got a guest on our show, which we hope to have in the new year, Mm -hmm. some more guests again. So what we can do now is when we're sitting next to each other, we can have the computer in the middle to act as the webcam and Mm -hmm. we can have them entirely on the screen instead of having to share that real estate with Adobe Audition, which is the editing software that I run in the background. So you Um, can monitor your special waveforms while we talk. So we test drove it the other day. Pat and I did a podcast and I had this one sitting over the top of it, which I actually do now. Mm-hmm. And I could have Pat entirely take up the screen and look My at his beautiful, beautiful face. Yes. I saw your glorious hair and all its color <laughs> and I could have my screen on top. It's fantastic because it's actually a magnetic screen. So I can just clip it off and it's amazing. take it anywhere with me and travel with it and everything like that. So yeah, thank you, Patreon. That's another welcome addition to our studio. Thanks to you guys. As we said, you know, all of the proceeds for Patreon have all gone back into developing our show. Yep. All the roving video footage that Pat's been doing out on the road has come through Patreon, That's like right. buying the cameras, the lenses, the fucking video cards, which are- It's um, madness. It's madness how expensive they are and how many he has to get. And all of the storage devices, uh, storage is massive. It's ridiculous. So because he's filming in high res 4K and everything like that, and then got to go home and dump it on the computer and edit yeah. it all up, it's a lot, a lot, a lot of data. So a few of the people at from PSA Nationals, right, have reached out, like the competitors, and wanted to buy the footage. I'm like, oh, I'll give you the footage. Like I, I, you know, have it for a purpose, and yep. I'm happy to give it to you. And I usually say, do you want me to like put it together as a just a, a composition clip, put it all together for you and send you that, or do you want the raw files? And a few people have said, yeah, yeah send me the raw files. <laughs> when <laughs> I send them a Dropbox link to 90 gig of footage, they're like, but I was only on the field for 10 minutes. I was like, yeah, that's 90 gig. That's 4K. <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. happens. 4K, 60 frames per second, 10-bit color, that's 90 gig. Mm. So anyway, yeah. But thank you, Patreon. You've bought us all the gear that we continue to use for the show. That's why I bring up your fancy, cool new monitor. It's the first time I've seen it. But it's a huge honor that people give us money to help improve the quality of the show. Now we're we're so lucky that we're buying kind of luxury things that mm. are handy to have, that not that uh, we're past the point of just paying the bills, that we're now upping the quality and making things better, which is awesome, which is amazing. It is amazing because at some stage, Pat and I have been talking about upgrading the studio and yeah. we need to do some soundproofing at some stage because I know I joke about the whisper room, but there are times literally where – well, we had to cancel on Tuesday. We couldn't. Really. Yeah. So this is like we're recording now late Thursday night after training because what was going on? You had something going on. There was something out here that was making a heap of noise, so we couldn't record. We've been having a lot of building going on here at the moment. We had new driveways out. We had electricians and plumbers. And yeah. So, yeah, people have been drilling. and The normal operation of the business, the, the kennel that we're at. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked about having some soundproofing squares on the walls, but the problem is they're not soundproof. What yeah, they yeah. do is they bounce the sound in. Inside, so, echo. Yeah, it stops it in our normal day-to-day conversations. In the room, I notice it a little bit when I'm doing editing and so forth, and it's not so bad. Like people all the time send me funny messages going, oh, I can't hear what you're complaining about. But to my ears, I can. I know yeah. exactly what I can hear because we've got wooden panel walls all around us. So the sound is sharp. It should have a little bit more dullness to it so it doesn't echo back. And it's little things, you know, yeah. it's little things. You might be sitting there going, oh, you fucking stupid <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but I think that's when you, uh, you know, and to relate it to dog training, like when you're good at something, you obsess over it. You want it to be perfect. You want to improve it in every way that you possibly can. And you, you solve each challenge as they come, right? So it's like each bite-sized piece, like I want to fix this, I want to improve this. And then it gets to the point where overall you're, 90% where you want to be and you start mm. sharpening up those tiny, fine little details, like exactly what I was just doing with my dog, right? Yeah. So it's like minute, tiny things that- Increments. Yeah, tiny mm. increments at, mm. at the very pointy end seem like nothing because you got to be progressing all the time and so it's it gets harder to progress. In the early phases, you're progressing in big 10 percenters, right? Like, boom, here's a big chunk, here's a big chunk, but then later on, it's like, here's this tiny little piece. But you know, you can only chunk- through the constant progression of increments. And that's yeah. the funny thing. Like everything you're doing, and I know that I've brought up, you know, my new obsession with guitaring and so forth like that, but the only way that you can get better and better at it, like I had an epiphany the other day because now I've bought like five guitars. I've got literally five guitars in the room. And Narelle keeps saying to me, why do you need all these guitars? What are you going to do with them all? And I said, they're all different, which is true. They are all different. They all have their own sounds. I just showed you one of my mm-hmm. new guitars before. But I had an awakening about this the other day, and I'm going to have an, a moment of honesty here. Uh-huh. I thought in my head subconsciously that if I bought all these new guitars, it would make me a better guitarist. Yeah, yeah. Like it would make me sound better because I can hear myself on the guitars that I'm playing and I think I'm getting better. Like I know I'm getting better. I can, I'm faster. I can play tunes. I can hold tunes. I can play some chords and stuff like that but I'm still really intermediate, like really beginner intermediate. I'm between that teaching training phase that we talk Mm. about in dog training. So in my head, I thought like I watch other guys play guitars and some of the runs that I've got, I've heard them play them on YouTube. And I thought, oh, if I get that guitar, I'm going to sound that cool. Mm -hmm. But the reality is a guitar is a piece of wood with strings on it. You're the musician. Like it has to come through you. The music comes through you. So the reality is I got a new guitar and I thought, oh, that doesn't sound as good as I thought it would. (laughs) (laughs) So there is no way, there's just absolutely no way of fast tracking it. Like you just have to go through the frustrations and the, the pains of not being where you want to be until you can incrementally pace yourself through it, go through, you know, those normal transitional phases of learning to get to it where eventually you can start chunking on things like, especially when you're adding quality to what you're actually doing. So originally it's not going to sound good. Your dog training is not going to be great. You know, like when we're talking about learning overall, like if we're talking about it comparatively to, you know, from dog training to horse riding to motorbikes to guitars, whatever it is, it's all incremental. You still have to go through those painful, Mm. tiny little increments of practice, practice, practice. Speaking of, you know Q from Red Team? Mm -hmm. Q's a a bit of a brainiac. Like he loves reading all the time. He's very much into engineering, which is why he got into the job Mm. he got into. But um, he often – rings me up here and there and tells me about certain types of books that I should be reading because he knows I like neurology and so forth. So he said, read the book, Why We Sleep. Yeah. I just finished Atomic Habits, which is a fucking kick-ass book. Mm. I've actually bought it or offered to buy it for all my managers here at work for their Christmas presents or whatever. I just said, I'll buy it for you. It's so good. I reckon everyone should read it. Yeah, right. It really is. It's a kick-ass book. James Clear, Atomic Habits. If you haven't got it, it will sing to you as a dog trainer as well. Yeah, right. He really has thought about the best way to improve your habits as a human being but it's so layered into what we do as professional trainers. Like you look at it and go, it's fucking brilliant. The Mm. words he uses, 
brilliant. His strategy and structure is brilliant. It's a fucking great book. So the other one, Why We Sleep, it talks about the actual physical damage you do to yourself by not getting structured and systematic sleep. Mm. It talks about what happens with mothers when they drink and smoke during pregnancy, what it does to the fetus because the fetus isn't sleeping well or Mm -hmm. isn't regenerating properly throughout the Mm -hmm. gestation period and so forth. It is incredible what I've learned about that book. And it also talks about how there is a genetic difference between early risers and people who are night owls. Mm -hmm. And it actually says the world has a bias to night owls. So it works in the favor of an early riser Mm -hmm. where you can try and fight that, but that's in your genes. And you'll generally find that it's come through a parent or a grandparent as it does. Mm -hmm. I'm a night owl. I don't function well in the mornings. I function much. This is perfect time for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think you're an early person. Aren't yeah. You? You're I'm up at five every day. Yeah. Narelle's the same. She loves getting up early and you know, this is her bedtime because we're recording this at nine 30 at night. Mm-hmm. For me, this is where I'm awake. My brain is at the highest capacity. It is. I think, well, now my brain is racing at a million miles an hour. I'm thinking about things. I'm writing emails. I'm thinking about the, the company, the business, everything. Like everything is racing through my head now mm-hmm. in the morning. I know that I'm like a car trying to start. Mm -hmm. And the book highlighted that for me because I always felt bad about it. I thought, you know, like I'm a bit of a shit because I don't function well in the morning and everybody's all happy and chirpy and I'm not. I'm grumpy and I'm, you know, like I'm slow to start and I can just feel like I'm living in a fog in the mornings. So what happens to people who get up early in the mornings and have to, when they're night owls and they have to do that, is your prefrontal cortex is offline. Mm. So the problem is the reason that you're emotional and grumpy is that your amygdala is running your body at that stage. So the sections of the brain that should be awake are still hibernating. They're still trying to come online. I found that absolutely fascinating. I always find that fascinating. I love it when you listen to Huberman and Sapolsky and, Mm. you know, anybody that talks about the neuropathways in your brain and how they all work and how the brain actually functions and makes us think about things. But I'm only halfway through it, but loving it. I've gone on a few long journeys and and been listening to it and had to play it back a few times because I thought, wow, that's really instrumental in coming to terms with why things have happened. Mm. Highly recommend it. Sleep's a funny one. Me and Jazz just discussing that. We're talking about a puppy that she's doing some stuff with. And one of the issues with like really high stimulated puppies, they don't get a lot of rest. And Mm. like this little dog has full tantrums. I was like, he needs sleep. Yeah, absolutely. This, I mean, and that's what I was going to actually say to you is that without this sleep, and this is why it's important for us as working dogs and so forth, our dogs need, you know, like if Macho runs in the yard at night, if I don't lock him up and he runs in the yard, he runs around and barks at the fence mm. and, he, and it pisses me off because he wakes me up. But if I lock him up, he goes straight into his crate and he goes to sleep and mm. like he sleeps a full night because he loves his crate. He mm. loves being in there. He loves the security of being confined in the crate, which is Again, it's one of those funny topics for people who think crate training is cruel. Mm. He loves it and he prefers to be in there. He feels safe and he feels comfortable in Mm -hmm. there, which is normal for a den-creating animal to be in that sort of situation. But, yes, if dogs don't get the proper sleep, as you said, they suffer the same frustrations. Yeah. Once again, this book, the intent of this podcast wasn't to talk about this book, but it really is so fascinating. Who Who writes that? I will get the author for you. I'll tell you who it is. Matthew Walker. Yeah, so he was on Rogan. I listened to him. He was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really brilliant. amazing. Yeah, he's yeah. an Australian guy too, right? I think he. I'm I, pretty sure I, he's Australian. I don't yeah. know. I actually pretty don't sure. know. I think yeah. he's Australian. Yeah. Mm. Him and Huberman are good mates. Are they? Yeah. 
there's no wonder they're regurgitating the same sort of language. Like yeah. when you listen to them talking and all those people at that level, when you're listening to people who have done doctorates in certain studies, you can just tell that they're very learned on their subject matter. Yeah. Like they really speak about it with passion and commitment. Yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating study and something that you take for granted because I don't sleep well. I'm not a good sleeper. Mm. I sleep for about six hours a night and then I struggle. But it talks about... You know that when you get tired and you feel the pressure, that's actually normal. That's part of your circadian rhythm. Like mm-hmm. your, your body actually builds pressure in your brain. And I think that's part of the whole melatonin processes and so forth, which the book does a much better example of, of talking about it than I could ever give it credit for. Mm. When he gives you all the examples of it, that like it's saying at that time, go to bed at that time. Don't yeah, fight yeah. it. Because when you start fighting it, that's when you're starting to cause problems. But it even suggested that young children who have struggled with autism and ADHD and so forth, it could be, and he's not saying it absolutely is, but he's saying it could be related to the damage done by children not getting enough sleep when they've been young. Mm. So he is saying that, you know, like it is absolutely essential, even for people who've suffered strokes and so forth, he said it's absolutely essential that you try and work out. Uh, And he said, you know, like it's very hard. I'm not saying suggesting it's easy, but you've got to try and allow the body the proper eight hours a a night to try and recuperate and allow those Mm. neurons to rediscover and communicate with each other from Mm. the damage that's created. It's brilliant. Yeah. So if if you've got a young dog, a puppy, this is why they always say, let sleeping dogs lie. Mm. You know, like there's a, that's been around forever, that saying, let sleeping dogs lie. I remember when we were kids and we had puppies, mum used to always say, don't wake the pup up, let it sleep. It's growing rapidly. You know, and my mum was not a dog trainer and she certainly doesn't know anything about supernovas either. (laughs) (laughs) But she always used to tell us as kids, don't wake the dog up, let them sleep. Yeah. And that is some of the best advice ever. Like don't wake your puppies up, let them sleep and let your dog sleep too. Like especially our us as working dog people, these dogs deserve rest. They've got to have proper regenerative rest. I I find myself giving that advice quite a bit when people have puppies, like young Malinois puppies, and they just – you know, have a tantrum basically that they, mm. they become super bitey and gr- they're just causing problems. And I, I, you know, when people say, Oh, what should I do? And they haven't say nothing, put in his crate. It's like, all oh, right, like negative punishment, put him away. I'm like, no, just make him have a nap because yep. that's why that's happening. Right. Mm. Like he's having a meltdown cause he's, he's tired. He doesn't know how to deal with himself at that time. So just don't try and deal with that. Don't try and like address that behaviorally when a puppy's having a tantrum, just mm. put him in bed and like in your box, close the gate, see you in a couple of hours. Right. Like, because that's what he needs. You, you, everything that you do, then you're just going to be compounding stress factors. Right. So if you yep. try and deal with that behaviorally, fix the issue, correct him, you know, you know, even if you're then trying to counter condition, whatever he's going off at all that kind of stuff, like you're pushing shit uphill, mm. just throw him in his box, give him a nap. He'll turn it. He'll come out better. And if there's still a problem then, then you deal with it then. I've known sleep causes issue. I remember an old friend of mine who was one of the first sort of natural therapists that, that Narelle and I ever knew, a guy called Dean, and he used to always tell me there's three things in life that everybody needs, good sleep, fresh air, and water, clean water, clean drinking water. He said they are literally the universal building blocks of life. Mm. Those three things are the most important, mm-hmm. fresh, clean air, good, clean water, eight hours of sleep. Mm. And Dean used to always say that. He said, mate, without those three things, he said that has to be part of the daily struggle of getting those three things. He Mm. said, without those three things, you're already at a disadvantage. Mm. It's literally the same sort of thing for our dogs as well. Like I said, I just was not aware until Matthew Walker in his book highlighted it. I don't have stakes in this book and I just – 
<laughs> I know. I'm, I know. I'm speaking. We need about, some Amazon affiliate links. Yeah, we do, books. don't we? Yeah. I know. I'm speaking about it with passion and conviction, and probably because it's the latest book I'm reading, and it's yeah. one of those like, oh fuck moments. But it really was, you know. Like I'm thinking, shit, you know, all the nights where I've gone out partying and you know, like stayed out all night and been up for 24 hours, you know, like hanging out and dancing and kicking it up. And yeah, you're killing yourself. Kill, you're literally killing yourself. It's just amazing that the alcohol and everything is one thing, but the, the sleep deprivation is horrific. Yeah. Absolutely horrific. And then on a long, ongoing basis, you're actually damaging your brain, like properly damaging your brain. Yeah. I know it's not dog training, but on Rogan, he was talking about like any sort of medicated sleep isn't sleep either. Yeah, he did say that. Yeah. yeah. So like, mm. you know, if you drink or smoke or whatever to mm. help you go to sleep, you're unconscious, but you're not asleep. You're like- You're not, not resting. You're yeah. not regenerating. What did he call it? NREM sleep or something? REM like- sleep. REM sleep. I think it's called- yeah, it's REM sleep, but it's NREM sleep. Like it's a deeper level of sleeping. Right. Okay. And he said that's where the real regeneration happens. Mm. And I think, he, don't quote me, but I think he says NREM sleep or yeah, something right. like that. But that's where the real regenerative powers come from because mm. it's like when your body is releasing the sleep pressure, your neurons are reestablishing, you know, like your whole body, all your cells are basically resting and restoring and all the damage that's been done to your body during all the day, the free radicals that have been in your body, like everything, your body is trying to reshuffle and resort it out. Like you're going into hibernation mode. So, yeah. you know, you are in that rest and repair cycle. So as you stated before, and it is kind of related to dog training because we don't realize that we're doing this to our dogs too, mm. by not allowing them proper sleep. Yeah. Well, and you find that with behavioral issues. So like if a dog is reactive to people that walk past, you live in a busy area on a corner Mm. block or whatever, right? And the dog is reacting all night, then you have already sort of a behavioral problem with the dog that then is compounded by the fact that the dog's not getting regenerative rest. So the dog probably kind of feels like shit all day, which then feeds into that reactivity and it just becomes kind of an ongoing cycle. The obvious and easy fix is putting the dog away somewhere at night, like Mm. put him in a box, put him somewhere where he's not going to be disturbed. He has nothing else to do. He powers down. He gets regenerative sleep and then he's not out. He's also not causing the problem, but his desire to cause that problem will reduce to the point where then you can probably reintroduce him to the stimulus later. And because he's in better shape, he won't be so affected by it. And then- of course, he probably wills to be affected, but then he's in a better circumstance to actually learn and, and take on board the training that you're trying to give. Mm. Yeah. I find that for sure all the time with kennel dogs. Like we, yeah, when dogs are in a kennel, so like even my own dog, when he stays here, he's exhausted when he leaves because he's up all night barking, carrying on, causing you problems, right? And he doesn't get decent sleep. And so I know when I bring him out of the kennel here, it's a couple of days before I can really achieve anything very it's very disruptive to the yeah. normal flow of life. Yeah, I have to let him sort of get back into a normal cycle before I can really achieve too much with him. I mean, he'll work, he'll do whatever, but if I'm trying to teach him anything new, I've got to let him settle back into, you know, become himself again. It's like you and I when we usually go over to an ISCP conference and then come home. Yeah. We're fucked afterwards. Yeah. Like literally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the issues. That's why, you know, when I, you know, travel and when I can again, like I used to when I go to the States, this is one of the best advice I got from Barton. I've got a lot of fucking advice. He's like always a day early, not like the day before, but a full, full spare day. Because if anything goes wrong with your flight, whatever, but also to recover from that sleep, they of missing and changing. Oh, I never, I never turn up on the day and just try and wing it. Yeah. I'm always there early because so, so I can adjust to the new cycle. Yeah. There's nothing worse than going there. Like I'll go there. I'll, I'll deliberately keep myself awake and then have a full proper sleep. Yeah. 
and then you can regenerate. And the same thing when you get home. I actually feel sorry now for people who do those red eyes for business who just mm. have to try and sleep on planes and then come in and then sit in boardrooms that try and function and then try and be intelligent and have intelligent input. Now I know it's crazy. Yeah. And just how bad it actually is for you. So, yeah, I do legit feel sorry for people. Yeah. All right. That's the sleep podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's the longest you've ever gone without sleep? Three nights. Yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah. Four days, three nights. Yeah. 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 Yeah, three nights, three nights of not sleeping. Yeah. I was just young and on a massive party and, yeah, just wild and kicking it up and going mental. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah. Now, they do it on selection for any sort of special force. They call it Is this the Schnappy the Crocodile thing? No, so that was there as well, but that was only like 58 hours, I think I was there. So they do this thing called demarcation on most most selection courses will have it, no matter what army it is, and it's, so it's like no food, no sleep for four days, three nights, and you're just doing like constant – sort of bullshit mission sort of things. It's just busy work to keep you going. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by that third day, you're hallucinating. It's very interesting. It's very interesting as an instructor. When I did my course, it's torture, you know, like as instructor, it's very interesting when you see, you know, you change out every eight hours, but you see people just falling apart, like just melting down. And it's one of those things you can't train for sleep deprivation you are who you are. And that's why they do it. It's not because you need to practice being sleep deprived. It's because when you are sleep deprived and food deprived, the facade comes down and we really get to see who you are. Right. Like, because you, in those sorts of circumstances, you're trying to recreate battle stress. Right. So like you're trying to just overload people with stress but they're safe and they know that, right? So, like, they know that they're not really going to get killed. They know that nobody's really going to hurt them. It's training. They're, you know, they're, they're here in Australia. They're safe. Mm. So, you need to find a way to create, you know, life or death level type stress artificially. And you just do that via no food, no sleep. And you, <laughs> you, you really get to see who people are. I can yeah. tell you that much. You'd probably get to see who I am after just not giving me food for a day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, mate, it's – you really – like, people who you think – are good dudes and, you know, they suddenly turn into not so good dudes when their their body starts, you know, eating itself. Mm. Right? I mean, that's what happens. You go, what's it called? Like catabolic and you start eating yourself and degrading and then that's when people start falling apart. Well, now I'm very far from being a neurologist, but my interest in reading about what such good mentors have been putting out, I now do understand when certain regions of your brain go offline and they do go offline in certain situations like that, like how crazy you can become by just take, for example, the amygdala hijack that we've heard about before that changes you. You're a whole different person. What they say is that the amygdala is the gas pedal and the prefrontal cortex is the brake. That's literally your, you've got a gas pedal on with no brake because mm. your prefrontal cortex is fucking closing down and your amygdala is just saying, hey, motherfucker, you know, let's, let's dance. <laughs> and, it's and full that's, steam ahead. Well, you Ramming know, like, speed. When you look at some of those sci-fi fables like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yeah. that's who you are. Like yeah. your brain has shifted between the varying personalities of who you can be and who you are. Yeah. You take, for example, a movie that you and I have talked about before, The Joker. Mm. You know, like that's a person making a complete transformation from from having the controls and then having no control like, mm. and then just embracing it, leaning right into it and becoming that whole new person and thinking, fuck it, this is who I need to be. I can't survive as that other person. Mm. This is who I need to be. That happens through, you know, like 
ongoing suffering and stress, like those sort of situations, you just, you become someone else. Yeah. To relate this to it because it's a dog podcast. <laughs> I was going to say, do you reckon anyone's still listening? <laughs> well, it's, I, I, to be honest, I, I find this extremely fascinating, like yeah. getting into the darkness of areas because we have to deal with this with dogs all the time. Yeah. You know, like this is a topic, an interesting one. Uh, this is a topic that us as boarding kennel owners, trainers and staff that work in this environment, the dog that people represent to us, which they truly believe is that dog because they see that dog. It's the same sort of thing that you said about Remy before, where when Remy comes home, he's exhausted because he behaves differently here. Mm. So people will come up and say, oh, little, little Miffy is just so sweet and innocent. Wouldn't hurt a fly. But Sometimes that dog can be a horrible, absolute pain in the neck when it's here. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that that dog is a horrible pain in the neck. It's just that it's been amygdala hijacked. It's yeah. stressed. So it's done that transformation. It is transformed in its head and become something else. And that's not to say that boarding kennels create that in dogs. It's stress that creates that. It's been yeah. the change of environment. It's that the dog has always been comfortable and safe. And we know that when we've talked about critical periods of development, and even improper access to socialization and habituation in certain areas. People haven't done it. COVID has created that problem. It's created it with, it, it mm. may create it with human beings like young children that have gone through some periods. It might be a bit funky for them getting back to school, socializing with people. We don't know what the ramifications are going to be like this for people. Even people our age are struggling. Mm. You know, they're struggling coming on the other side. It's Christmas right now and it doesn't feel like Christmas. Mm. You know, that anticipation of Christmas that you're usually going, oh, it's a Christmas time. I can feel it. You know, like I can feel it in the air. We're coming up to that time. Even though I work every Christmas and it's our busiest time, I still feel Christmassy. But this year and last year, it didn't feel like Christmas. I think largely, depends where you are in the world. Everybody's under different circumstances and different mm. restrictions and whatever. But I feel like people in Sydney are kind of too scared to get excited about anything. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, yeah, the, any minute the rug is going to be fucking pulled out from underneath us. Yeah. Uncle Brad Hazard yeah. is just going to rip it out, that miserable turd. But, like, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you just don't know. It's so hard to make plans. Like, I was about to, you know, having gone to the States and done that film, the PSA Nationals, and I was super pumped, and I was like, this is it. I'm ready to rock. And, you know, Fabian was there, and he was the last seminar I did at his place in Chicago, and we were talking, and we were like, hey, let's do it. Like, we were talking dates, had it all good to go. And then, you know, travel ban again with the new variant, and it's like, fuck. Like, I was so close. I was so close I could taste it. Mm. Like, I was nearly there. Yeah, it's tricky. The problem is that you could find yourself being locked out of your own country or, you know. That's the trouble. So that's why I've had to pause everything again because I'm sure we've talked about people sick of hearing it, but the logistics train, if I were to get COVID in the States, I'm stuck there Mm. for at least another two weeks on top of what I plan to be there. Because you wouldn't, if you fail that PCR test, you got to get one within three days before your flight. So that means it's at the back end of your trip. If you fail that, then you're there and you never mind the illness, right? Like that's another problem. But just the logistics and administrative problem yep. of even trying to get home then. You're stuck there for another two weeks. You've got to enter the medical system because you've got to get a recovered from COVID certificate. Like all that And the cost bullshit. Yeah. It. Like yeah. so then you're in a hotel for another two weeks, you're paying for that. You know, I'm away from my family, I'm not making any money during that time. Like it's it just is untenable. Yeah, it is. Even for us, you know, like we've got to consider now that our business has grown exponentially, like it's we're a different company than what we were what we were two years ago to now is different. Even though we've gone through that, we just can't risk it. Yeah. We even had to have separate Christmas parties this year because we just can't 
have a house of cards and have everyone come together and blow all the managers out and yeah you know and, and well i think that's what's tricky especially in the like essential worker space which all of you guys are you're looking mm. after a kennel full of dogs is that like you imagine you have a christmas party everybody gets covid everybody has to go into lockdown like what then? That's who, an who absolute the, nightmare scenario. Who the fuck feeds the 200 dogs in, exactly. in the kennel? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So there's got to be some checks and balances in place to shift this all around and, you know, play Tetris with it all the time. Yeah. It's an ongoing game of life Tetris. Yeah. And that's what people, are, when I have to be non-committal to a lot of the things that I was committing to, I literally have to say to people, I'm playing a game of life Tetris at the moment. Like I'm trying to be a general manager of a an ever-growing company that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, like I've got 120 staff now. Yeah. You know, that's just crazy to think about that as as that goes. You know, we're, we're trying to travel around, see them, having to do all the PCR tests ourselves to make sure that we don't take anything up there. It's crazy, but it's the way the world is. That's how it is going to be for a little while longer. Hey, um, you want to talk about dogs? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got a little bit of time left to actually talk about dogs. So uh, dogs are great. Bye. <laughs> you like dogs? Yeah, we like dogs. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I did want to quickly fit into this episode, there was a comment a while ago, which I thought was an interesting comment, and I felt indifferent to the comment itself. And I'm interested what you think, because mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll throw the comment out. So the comment was put on social media that the best way to train a dog, like let's say, for example, a drop or a sit or something like that is through inducement. And they were pretty much putting it out there that that's the best way to do it. Like a, it, it's a plus R type of way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, interesting. I disagree with it because my belief is that the best way to train a dog is a way that the recipient is going to respond to. Ultimately, that's how I feel is the best way to do everything now. I'm not trying to buck the system or fight the person or or get into an argument or anything like that. Like the more learned you become and the more the more of these books you read, the more of the people that you're collaborating with and the more things that you actually see hands on yourself and watching other people train. I've seen so many different ways to train a dog to do a drop. Let's use that position as an argument point mm-hmm. or a discussion point. Sure. I've seen people do a brilliant job of it inducively, using food, luring the dog down, marking the dog in position, et cetera, et cetera. But I've also seen for some dogs that just don't respond well to that. And then people say, yeah, but you've got to give it time. Whereas I've seen people use an example of compulsion where they've gently guided the dog down in position. And yes, the dog has been awkward with the whole process before the dog doesn't understand it it still doesn't understand it completely with food in the initial learning phase or teaching phase it still doesn't understand completely what it's doing it's primarily just being lured or guided into a a position in either way i've seen each way work and have huge benefits for the dog at the end of the day and then people said yeah but the dog would be faster if you lure it down I beg the differ because I've seen dogs that have been compulsively guided down in position and still been fucking fast at dropping before. And I've seen dogs that have been lured down. What's my favorite way? I think the path of least resistance is generally my favorite way these days. I would prefer to do, and I, I think the dog would prefer it as well, is the path of least resistance. But it's interesting that somebody, well, anybody would gravitate towards one way. Like, are they saying that the best way to do it is that way because that's their favorite way of doing it and that's the way that's worked with the dogs they're training or what? I suppose from my point of view, those sorts of statements like the best way to do anything can be statistically accurate. 
right? Mm-hmm. So it would be like, you know, for most dogs, the best way to do it is this. Yep. I think that the problem is it doesn't leave a lot of space for the dogs that doesn't work Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, overwhelmingly, we like we know positive reinforcement typically is one of the better ways to, to train everything. Yeah. But you can get some weird times where it doesn't work, where the dog really wants to avoid the position for whatever reason. And often you know, with a drop, it can be usually there's been some sort of negative experience involved in the drop, right? So like you get a dog that drops onto a stick at some point in its life and has an uncomfortable and now doesn't want to do that or, you know, whatever. So I'd say that there is no best way to do anything. I think that every dog is kind of individual and there's probably a way to teach everything that you're going to teach, no matter what it is, that is for 80% of dogs, it is the best way. Right. Mm. And for 5% of dogs, it's never going to work. And for another 5% of dogs, it's not the best way. You know, like we can break that down into multiple categories, Mm. the more you go. But I think that when anybody says it's the best way, I think that what they probably mean or what they should mean, and I think most people probably do, is that for most dogs, this is the best way. Yep. And and the best way is that's got a lot of room to talk about best by what measure, right? But that's exactly right. It's more the, the statement of the individual rather than like a complete statement. And that was where I was thinking about it because I kept thinking – how could you make that statement as just like a blanket statement? Mm. You know, like it just seems to be so finite in the way that it was said. Yeah. I mean, there's pros and cons. Like, we, you know, you can break it down. There's only there's only two ways to teach anything, positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, right? Like that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. And then you can break those into multiple categories, like what that reinforcement looks like. And then probably a third way where you use both, right? Mm-hmm. But there's pros and cons to both of those in that, Positive reinforcement, highly appetitive training. You're going to have a better attitude. You're going to have that kind of all those kind of things. It might be faster, but you might it might cost you some reliability. You know, so then depends on when you want to say the best way by what is the measure of best, right? Mm. So are we talking sort of totally like a holistic piece for a particular criteria? Because if you want to talk fast, then probably, probably again not every dog, but probably the best way is that food, positive reinforcement. But if you want to talk reliability, then probably the most reliable way, and if reliable is what we're going to call the key criteria, then best would be negative reinforcement, right? Mm. So like it really is horses for courses. And I think, again, it's actually a conversation me and Jazz were just having you know, you've got to train the dog in front of you. And I think that's one of the things we that- We should have got Jazz in. Yeah, we should have, yeah. Mm. We are just talking about a little dog that we're both sort of dealing with at the moment. And, you know, people want to talk about bloodlines and all kinds of stuff. And it's like, it's kind of irrelevant. Like we, the dog is here. So like, it, it's nice to know what his parents are like and what the rest of the bloodline is like. That's nice. And I really would like to know that, but he is here doing things right in front of us. Mm. And so we can, we can read those things and deal with them as they're unfolding. And it'd be nice to have that backstory. In fact, it'd be wonderful but that's nice when we're talking theory and we're figuring it out. But right now he's doing stuff and we can manipulate that stuff, mm. right? Like we can read that right here. The reason that this is sort of a topic that was bouncing around in my skull was a while ago I had access to this chocolate Labrador that was here, mm-hmm. came here to the kennels. And I was speaking to the lady who actually owned the dog. She was talking about wanting to do training. And I said, oh, have you done training with a dog before? And she said, yes, I've had a few encounters with training. And I said, that doesn't sound positive. And mm-hmm. she said, well, the people were nice and, you know, like I kind of enjoyed the majority of it, but I can't get my dog to drop. And I said, can't. 
And I said, well, what have you tried? And she said, mainly positive training. And she said, the dog will do everything else. She said, but for some reason, it just has, she didn't use the word, but she said it has an aversion to dropping. And I said, so tell me what you've tried. I was actually surprised at the language she used because she was quite switched on to what the dog was doing and not doing. So she said, well, we have tried shaping the dog. And I said, oh, so you do know what you're talking about. And she said, oh, look, I've been working at this for 18 months and I've been working with trainers like I've had private lessons and everything. I said, okay, well, this is extensive. Please continue. And she said, okay. So we tried shaping where we were trying to mark the dog to get into the position. And she said, so the trainer suggested that we try free shaping because they said the dog Mm -hmm. does have a negative connotation towards dropping. She said the dog will lay down and the dog will be comfortable. But when you try and interact with the dog in any way, the dog gets up like it's suspicious and gets nervous. And I said, had the dog since a puppy? She said, yes, had the dog since a puppy. And I said, anything untoward? She said, not that I can think of. My husband and I treat the dog very well. He doesn't lose the temper with the dog. We've got grown-up children. They haven't done anything wrong. They don't leave at home. And when they come around, they're nice to the dog. The neighbours have been fine. The, the dog's always been, you know, mm. like closely monitored. Um, she had a, a sound social structure with the dog, critical period, no problems. And I said, this is really weird. Like, it's really strange. So with this dog, positive reinforcement, wasn't helping the dog to drop. Like she had tried free shaping, which the trainer had suggested, which I would have suggested as well. Like yeah, wait for the dog to lay down, to, mark yeah. it and, and bring the dog back up. And I said, does it work? And she said, look, it works. Like the dog will free shape in those sort of behaviors and then come for the reinforcer. And she said, or the reward. But she said, the problem is, is that it just doesn't seem to be connective. Like if you say to the dog drop, the dog starts to become anxious. And I said, could you show me? you know, let's go into the training studio and have a look. Took her in there. The dog was running around. Happy dog. Fine. Come over. Smoochy, big, lovable, friendly Labrador male. And I said, okay, show me. So she said, drop. And the dog, you could see the dog like literally go into conflict straight away. The dog was looking at her like, oh, not this again. Mm. And I thought that's funny. And I said, okay, anything else that the dog is not doing? She said, no, he sits, he comes back, he gives his paws, he rolls over, does all the things. I said, show me. She did it all. The dog completed everything well, just wouldn't do the drop. And she said, what would you suggest? And I said, at this stage, I really do believe that you've tried everything that I would recommend starting with. At that stage, I said to her, you know, like I used the whole positive first. I said, I really think this is the best way to do it, but you've tried that. Like you've done it all. Mm. You've, You've had lessons. You're actually, your proficiency level is much better than most people I talk to. You're using my language. You're doing things that I would have done. I said, you're actually like a professional handler. You've done that well. She said, yeah, I just can't get him to drop and no one else can do it either. And I said, at this stage, I would recommend compulsion if it's important to you. And I said, slow, incremental, you know, like we just have to work with the dog. And I said, it's going to be stressful for the dog to begin with, but I recommend this is the way to do it. So I started working with her and the dog and I started helping the dog go into compulsion sit. So basically holding the dog by the collar bracing the dog underneath, and then we did what I call the seated sweep. So you start from a sit, put your left hand under the collar, so literally slipping up. I know the listeners at Mm. home can't see, but literally what you're doing is you're coming along the spine of the dog with your hand up under the collar, so you're gripping it, and then while the dog's in a sit, you use your other hand and you sort of do like a, a half grip on the other leg and you sweep it forward and bring the dog down. I said, I'm not going to make the dog go completely down when we're doing it. I'm just going to slowly do this and get the dog used to feeling comfortable with this and then mark the dog, you know, for trying to do it. So 
I brought the dog a little bit down. I could already feel the stress and attention building up in the dog. So the dog literally went into iron mode as soon as I did a little bit of it. But I got the dog about a third of the way down, waited for the dog to relax. So we call it relaxed compliance. So the dog was calm, marked the dog, let the dog up from position. And I said, that's all we're going to do for now. And that's all I want you to do for the moment. If it needs to be a little bit less, it can be a little bit less. It said, it's not regression. It's fine. Just go with that. So it took us about, I'd say it took us a month but we finally got the dog to drop. And after we got the dog to drop, it was like the whole fucking cloud lifted on the dog. Mm. And the dog was, ha- people listening to this would be thinking, that sounds like a horrible way to do it. The dog must have really not enjoyed it and then had a further aversion to doing drop. Absolutely not. All we were doing was using negative reinforcement. So allowing the dog to understand that there's benefit to doing this. There's mm. something on the other side of it and there's a payout. So primarily when we were doing it with the dog and after after the dog understood it and we were able to layer in the command and get the dog up actually feeling comfortable with it, you'd say drop and the dog would go down like crazy fast. Mm. But for some reason there was a blockage between his initial introduction to it. Sit, beautiful, like Without me, I didn't have anything to do with his pre-programming before. Somebody else did that. Another trainer, I don't even know who it was. I didn't even ask, which is unusual for me, usually because I give 20 questions about who did it, what they do, how Mm. do they do it. I did ask those questions, but I just didn't get the name of the trainer. But interestingly enough, they did a good job. Her and this person, whoever that was, did a really good job together, just couldn't get the dog to drop. Mm. So that's why it got me thinking. My response to this is, and it's a phrase that I often use regularly, is use what works. Mm. It's it's the one thing that I always keep coming back to people. I've said it for years. It, it was probably said to me at one stage, which was why I adopted it, but it's something that I keep saying, keep echoing. It's my echo chamber word to people. Don't fight it. Fucking do it. Just use it. You don't have to ask my permission or yours or anybody else's. If it's working and you're getting great benefit from it, Just shift to it. Mm. Like that's the best thing to do. When people say the best way to do it, it wasn't for this dog. It absolutely wasn't. Mm. This lady had tried and tried and tried and tried to the point where she knew trainer lingo. She knew the industry language to the point where she absolutely knew what free shaping was. Like 90% of trainers that I speak to have no fucking (laughs) idea what free shaping is. Free shaping is fleeting. Like it's something that – you can start with initially, but then it turns into shaping. And it has to because once you manufacture it, it changes from a free platform into something that's structured. Yeah. But she knew that. So whoever explained it to her did a fucking good job of explaining it because she actually knew that, mm. which I was really impressed with. But we had to go into the whole compulsion training, which was kind of leads me into the second part of this discussion because on Instagram the other day, somebody said, I've heard you and Pat talking about compulsion, but you tend to talk about inducement-based training most of the time, plus our type of training. Mm. And I said, yeah, because most of the time with our own- Because people fucking attack us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, just, you can speak about positive reinforcement <laughs> 200, 200 episodes, and then as soon as you say something about punishment, it's like, fuck Here's you. Here's a red-hot poker up your bum hole. Yeah. The reason that we agree with that on a large scale, I mean, we, we talk about the fact that we're active balance trainers. Mm. We use the whole matrix, and people even get squirrely about that sort of language sometimes as well. But- the reality is, is we use everything that's available yep. to us, but favor a positive first. And I, I think that's the the way that most of us would generally agree that's the best way to train a dog. Yeah. But you can't do it when it's not available. If you had to guess, what do you think happened to that dog? Why do you think it was like that? Do you think some dogs are just like that genetically 
or do you think it had some sort of experience that, that I think it was experience. I think when you were using an example before where you said maybe the dog sat on a thorn or a sharp stick or had a pain response to it. Yeah. Like at one stage in its life. And we went through the whole medical thing, you know, like if you had the dog's hips checked, is there any osteochondritis, OCD in the elbows or anything like that? She had them all checked. Everything. Mm. Like everything that you could think of. I felt the dog, you know, like it was a male dog. So I said, anything wrong with his penis or testicles or anything because they're ground clearance or anything, stung by a bee, anything that you could think of. You could have like a single event learning process where something really terrible happened, which the dog thought, I'm never dropping. Like I said, when I first originally grabbed the dog, and I'm pretty good with compulsion. I've been using it for years and I teach all, every NDTF student has to learn both ways. So we teach them both ways. Even if they don't like it, we still show them and said, look, it's something you just have to learn for the course. You don't have to do it outside, but you have to know about it. Like mm. it, it's helpful to know. In this case, it was absolutely helpful to know. It's not isolated to this dog. It's not the only dog in the world that's benefited from this type of training before. No, no, just, you get it every now and again. You get it every now and then, exactly. Yeah, I would say that something like the stick or the bee or... Um, yeah, it had to be something, right? Like yeah. he, he was physically injured in some way, very likely, he, you know, single event, was significant to him, Mm. something like that has to have happened. So instead of playing 20 questions, I think we played 200 questions by the time that we asked those, the whole platform, because I did say to her all the medical history of the dog, Mm. as much as you can. I mean, it's, you know, like training a dog sometimes and learning about a, especially an adult dog is like, um, it's like a murder scene. You've literally got to sit there and ask everything you can to find out how did the body get here? Mm. So Primarily, when I'm trying to train a dog, when I'm learning about these dogs, as we've stipulated before, this is a body with a chalk line around it. Yeah, How did puzzle. it get there? Yeah, it's, it's, it's solved the puzzle. I think it, it's weird, though, to get a dog, like, you, you know, in my mind, for it to be a single behavior that he has a weird aversion to, there has to have been an incident. Like, has you know, to. With some dogs, you get dogs that don't want to do anything they're told, almost like a belligerence that as soon as they realize that, there's a transaction happening. Like they're happy to take food and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And then the moment you like, Hey, I need you to do this and to earn the food. They say, fuck you. I'm not doing anything. Right. And the stubborn dog, they're so rare. And for the most part, yeah, I don't even know if stubborn's the right word, but as trainers, we're like, dogs aren't stubborn. You're just not explaining yourself correctly. You're not communicating, but there are dogs that are like, Hey, nah, like I, I had a, a duchy once that was a great dog. You'd throw the ball, do all the things, everything. The moment it went transactional, like the moment you were like, hey, I need you to do something to earn this. He was like, fuck you, I don't want it. <laughs> or he'd be like, you know, I could bite you and take it that way. Like yep. that was it. He just was like, you don't tell me what to do. And I wasn't heavy handed on him. I, he wasn't my dog. I was just there. But like nobody that I knew of was heavy handed on the dog or anything. He just didn't like being told what to do. Mm. He didn't like the transaction. And more often than not, as soon as you ask him to do something, he's like, I don't fucking want it. And it was a very high drive dog, right? Very high drive dog. And he ended up being totally reinforced with bite work. He's a police dog now. So it's like, it's not like he needed complex skills, mm. um, but it's, that was in every behavior. Anything you asked him to do, he was like, no, I don't like doing what I'm told. But then when it's a specific behavior, you got to think, hey, that's not a dog issue, right? Like that's a that's that behavior. Something happened with that. Something that you were just talking about before got me thinking because I've been on the panel of conversations where people have talked about the active intelligence of dogs before. We do have to consider that just as there are in people, there are intelligence levels in dogs it doesn't mean that you have to be intelligent to be able to do basic skills. 
but you do have to have a degree of intelligence to how you go about learning how to do them. Mm. So what could be arbitrary toward for something for you and me to learn, somebody else may struggle with it and have a lot of difficulty in doing it. Mm. Could be neurological damage. They could be lacking in that area. You know, they could be having an unevolved brain to be able to do it. And I'm not being derogatory. I'm actually talking actual physical truths. Do you think you've ever encountered a, a very intelligent dog, not a highly trained dog or a trained like a high drive dog, but a dog that was intelligence above the baseline or the norm, like that stood out to you like, oh, wow, that dog is smart. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For sure. And do you like those dogs or not? They can be cunning. Yeah. I've had issues with it. Yeah. I, I think I like medium intelligence, high drive. Yeah. Because I've had very high intelligence dogs that I think, you know, I don't know how to measure that, but I find them harder to train because they figure things out too quickly and they they get the pattern yep. and they predict, they preempt things, all that kind of stuff because they're not intelligent enough to be like at our level where they're like, oh, I see what's happening here. Like mm. I get the, but they're- They outplay you sometimes. Well, yeah, but they, they anticipate and they try and get ahead of what you're doing because they're like, hey, I just want the reinforcer. I know what you're trying to do here. And you're like, mm. hey, but I'm not trying to do that, right? You're, and I think sometimes- what I've experienced as well with dogs that I would describe as very intelligent is you can think you've taught them something, but you haven't like they don't, it doesn't, it's not retained. It's just that they've figured it out in that moment. They're like, yeah, okay. I see what will get me reinforced here. And it appears as though they've learned the behavior, but they haven't really, they've just been able to solve that puzzle right there and then. And mm. that doesn't necessarily lay like a permanent track that you can then play somewhere else later on. That's the problem I've had with what I think is more intelligent dog. Mm. You know, there's no way to know that. Like when I was at that dog lab at Yale, they were trying to come up with experiments to measure brute force intelligence. Like to say this dog is smarter than that dog, not more trained, not more driven, not those things, but smarter in the same way you would do an IQ test. But I think even in people, we have a really hard time measuring intelligence, right? Mm. Because your IQ tests are very socioeconomic dependent. Like some people can't understand the test because of the angle that they're looking at it from, right? So they could be a highly intelligent person, but not understand the context of the questions. And so I don't know how the fuck we would ever come up with some sort of thing to measure intelligence in dogs. But usually for me, that's when I say, oh, this dog is smart because they figure things out quick, they preempt them, and then they don't retain that very well, right? Like that doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as recallable later. Mm. Whereas I prefer like a medium intelligence dog. Like I've certainly worked dumb dogs, you know, like some dogs, like we have a particular one in the club. <laughs> <laughs> but like I've worked medium intelligence dogs, high drive. You treat them the same way you treat any other dog. You do enough reps. They've got the drive to want to participate in the reps and do mm. it over and over. And you can go like, hey, man, you've got it. You understand it through repetition. But those dogs that are like two reps and they're like, hey, I got it. And you're like, yeah, I know you can do it now, but will you be able to do it in three days from now in a different location? And, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it, I would love – that's one of the things that when we can get – into the mind of the dog. That's one of the things I'd love to know for sure. Cause I'm totally guessing right now that I think those dogs that I've had trouble, they get things fast, but then don't retain it for later. I think that's intelligence that causes that, but I, I could be totally wrong. The most intelligent dog that I've had myself, my own dogs of all of them was Harley. Like he was above everyone. It's just an incredible dog. What he learned, you could teach him a complete set of patterns and then untrain it and then train him in a different way. Mm. And Boyd and I used to experiment with him all the time. And I remember that one of the biggest belly achings I got off Boyd when I was a young trainer, I was probably about 21. We would do the first timers demonstration. So me and Boyd would go out there, we'd do this demonstration with Harley 
and people would sign up. We'd try and sign them up to the highest package we had. We were doing this routine, and of course it was a routine, so Harley would preempt it all the time. I'd go to give the command, but he'd just shoot off in front of me, mm. and it, I didn't like it. I said to Boyd, look, this is ruining what I'm doing with the dog. I don't like He said, yeah, I agree, so we need to change it up, and we need to um, randomise what we're doing. And I said, good, because it's pissing me off. I'm, I don't want to spend all this time doing it and then undoing it through this because he's learning mm-hmm. the, the system. So we'd change it round. He used to fucking piss me off because within the shortest amount of time, he'd literally be looking at us and calculating his way through it, and then he'd just preempt it again. And one day Boyd came to me and goes, oh, I fucking thought we were working on this. And I said, mate, for some reason he knows. And Boyd turned around and there were like a lot of trainers there and it's the first time I ever got like a proper humiliation. And he goes, mate, that's the fucking stupidest thing that's ever come out of your mouth. He's a fucking dog. He doesn't know. He doesn't have the mental cognition that you and I have. So to say that is anthropomorphizing your dog. How could you even say that? You should know better than to make a stupid blanket comment like that. That's a and, good good boy you just did then. Yeah. Well, I've been with it, mate. I've, I've been with him for a long time. So my jaw hit the ground. Like I was like, how dare you? Yeah. Anyway, so I said, all right, if that's the case, how are we going to fix it? So Boyd came up with a strategy. Instead of actually saying, you know, any words, we were going to use numbers, you know, so we're going to say numbers. And then the next week we're going to say, instead of saying numbers, we were going to say colors to emphasize what we're going to do. So him and I beforehand would know what the code was. Then we go and do it. Harley worked it out in three lessons and Boyd turned around one day and he goes, you're right, he knows. <laughs> he fucking learned it. He yeah. was very clever like that. So that's, that's, that's what I mean with the very intelligent dogs. They can mm. be a pain in the ass. He, he was a pain in the ass with things like yeah. that. Yeah, he was a pain in the ass with things because he could work it out. He could outplay the play. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, Just because he's my dog, I'm not trying to make out that he was this super brainiac dog or anything like that. Like in other areas, he had his limitations. But with things like that, It's just that we all spent, like the whole club, because he was the prime dog doing the work, we all spent a lot of time training him. Mm. He got a lot of training. He got a lot of exposure, like a lot. And that was the thing that I think benefited him from every other dog. Like I'm looking at the dogs on my wall. That You know, I've got Dutch who's um, over there. And even though he was a lovely dog and I adored him, he was a big potato. Yeah. He was just a licking machine that could not stop fucking licking you, no matter how aversive you made it. He'd even squint his eyes with horror and still come over and lick you. <laughs> he just could not fucking help it. And I loved him, but he was not a fucking shadow on Harley. Even Gammon, she was cunning, but nowhere near as intelligent as Harley. Someone told me once, and uh, I'm not sure how I feel about this, that highly intelligent dogs often suffer nerve issues as well because they maybe understand things a bit better than a dog should. So they lose the kind of happy-go-lucky, like, oh, everything's cool, everything's fine, that hyper-intelligent dogs can sometimes be like, hang on, everything isn't cool, there's risks here. Like they understand elements of danger better and that then presents as nerve. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but that's what I heard one time and I was like, yeah, like in the dog that the guy was giving me the example of, I was mm-hmm. like, that appears the case because it was a very highly trained, highly intelligent dog, but quite nervy. And I was like, mm, from this sample of one, I agree, but I'm not sure about that. Well, if you look at, and I wouldn't say this is always the case, but they do say that high genius is also associated with high insanity. You're existing between worlds at those levels. To go back to that statement with the dog though, with again, to talk about Harley, I never saw that with him. He was a very happy-go-lucky dog. Mm. He was happy all the time. He was a fucking machine of a dog. Like, he would shred people. At the, like, you'd give him one command, he'd turn on anybody that you directed him at and then be completely at peace, and I mean completely at peace. 
I just didn't understand how good a dog he was because I was too young to appreciate it. He was just my dog. And mm. I just thought, oh, this is normal. This is what dogs do. It wasn't until I saw how difficult it was to transpose that to other dogs. Like, I love Randy. He's a great dog. You know, like, I have a lot of fun with him. He's a pain in the ass sometimes, but I, I really love him. But again, he's, he's just so different to Harley. Harley mm. was just amazing. But when you don't know what you don't know, you just don't know. Mm. You just assume this is just an – I just thought it was normal. He was just a normal sort of dog to me until I couldn't replicate it again. That was really frustrating. And that's what I've, I've said in other episodes when we've talked about it, the injustice I did, especially to Dutch, to try and get him to be like Harley because I thought Harley's getting old now. He's going to fade away and he's going to not be able to do this. I need to keep this momentum going, you know, like I need to feel this rush that I get from being popular through my dog, through my other dog. I was kind of like one of those mums who make their little kids fucking run up on stage and do all these <laughs> horrific pageant mum. pageant mum. Yeah, I became like a pageant mum with my dog. Yeah. And it was distressing me because I didn't realise I was doing this at the time, but I was putting so much pressure on this dear old boy when he was just a potato and he couldn't do it. He couldn't replicate what mm. Harley was and nor could Biff couldn't do it. And Randy can't be Harley. He, they're all different. They're all unique. They're all identities. They can do similar things and they have their own identities and they have their own persona and their own capabilities, but he was different to all of them. Yeah. And it was just a blessing that I had him as my first dog. I was lucky. I was a lucky guy to, to have access to him. And again, I emphasize he wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. There were still things that if I look back now, I could say, oh yeah, you could improve this. Like his grip wasn't always as deep and as powerful as it possibly could have been. You know, there were other dogs at the club who outgripped him for argument's sake. You know, like Harley would always have this little tiny breathing gap that he would never go full in. He would sometimes, like I've got pictures of him biting sleeves, you know, right up to the back of his molars, but Sometimes he would grip out so he could breathe. I said to Boyd, that pisses me off. And Boyd goes, I actually see it as an intelligent thing because he he doesn't try and fatigue himself. He likes to have that little breathing port where he comes out. And he goes, mm. that's my perception of it. And he goes, I know it pisses you off. And he goes, but he doesn't fatigue himself on bites that way. And I said, well, I don't know. We can debate that till the cows come home. I'm not mm. sure how I feel about it. So there were things, things like that, that would piss me off. But other things he was just incredible at. There's so many things in dogs that you just will never get the answer to. You know, yeah, like, that's exactly is, right. Is was he just trying to breathe better, or was he lazy in the grip? You know what I mean? Or is it a combination of both? One led to the other. Like who knows? You just there's so many things that you're just never going to get the answer to. Yeah, but like I said, I'm under no illusion that he was the perfect dog or he did everything perfectly. There were things like he could have some lazy healing, but I didn't know how to teach it healing so well back then you know like I was using a lot of force a lot of compulsion in in training so his healing could have been better much better he had fast drops he had fast sits he had great recalls he did all these complex skills he was doing them before we even used used to really even teach complex skills but he had a really shitty heel it was mopey and ugly and it didn't really look mm. look as good as it possibly could have been that was never an indicator that he wasn't an intelligent dog. He was a really intelligent dog. Mm. Whereas Dutch could out heal him. Dutch was a really, he was like a watching an Elkabolo Blanco pony next to you. He would prance like a pony next to you, skipping and having his feet prop up. Yeah, and, and that everything. would just be your skill set, right? As time went on, you skill set genetics. It. Yeah. 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 Harley, I don't think Harley had the genetics to want to do it as well as Dutch was a beautiful healer. He was a really different dog as a healer. Gammon wasn't as good a healer as Dutch. He was the best healing dog I've had. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
There's so many little quirks with different dogs. That's exactly right. They're all different. They're all unique. They amaze you in their little character traits that they have. I think, you know, to finish talking about that compulsion piece, Mm. I think where people get kind of uncomfortable with that is that not too many people think of the word compulsion is such a strong word, right? Like it carries a lot of emotional weight. It's just a word, but it's like the word fuck. Yeah. You know, like when you hear that now, like most people in our circles, in yours and mine, our circles, I mean, it's just like a full stop or a comma. Yeah. You know, we just use it, but you say it in front of other people and it's really offensive. Yeah. Like it's a highly offensive word. Yeah. I know we've talked about this so many times and the C-bomber word and everything like that, but you say that word to some people and they laugh and they think, oh, that's amazing. You said that word. I'm so happy. I feel inclusive that I'm in a group of the people that feel comfortable to say it. And it's the same thing with compulsion. Yeah. But so you see some people sort of in our industry who will say, oh, no, I never use compulsion. I just gently insist that the dog does it. And it's like, ah, that's compulsion. (laughs) Because if I were to say, I will compel you to do that. If you lift your dog out of the car, it's compulsion. If you lift your dog into the car, it's compulsion. You can't fight that. We know that. But then it's the word play around how you want to do it. And I think that, you know, not to sort of get into the, I don't want to go into the us and them sort of how people do things, mm. but I think the words you use frame the way you think. And so a lot of people think of the word compulsion as like, you know, we get from compulsion compel and there is no way out of that. Like I will compel you to do this, mm. you know, and people will say like, when I had no choice, I felt compelled. Right. So like it really, it's weaponized. Yeah. It, mm. No, but it's a strong word that indicates that, like force is used. Mm. I I think that's what people use. And they think of compulsion. It's like you will be forced to do something, which Mm. is exactly what it is. But then you're the same. We could take away the word compulsion and we could say, you know, insistence, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's the same thing. I insist you have to do this, right? Like I insist or, or guide. Yeah. Guide. Right. Like the end point is still the same. That's the issue. We spoke about this recently as well. Like the problem is that the lang- the scientifically correct language that we have, it doesn't always service as well as other words could, mm. but then we're kind of lying a little bit when we use those other words. Because I mean it, like if we're going to use compulsion, we're compelling. That's how it's going to go down. Yep. And that's that's the truth of negative reinforcement. You know, once you start, like you got to end it because w- when the pressure comes off, that's the learning moment, right? Mm-hmm. So no matter how slight that pressure is or, you know, whatever it is you're guiding the dog to do, when the pressure comes off, the pressure motivates, the release educates, right? And so when we say that we're going to compel the dog, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to compel the dog. It's mm-hmm. gonna, he's going to have to do it because if I, if I start this process and I, I start compelling, if I start guiding the dog into the, and then he doesn't, he does something else and I go, oh, my bad. And that's what he learned, right? He learned to fight it or to do the opposite of what, because I turned off the pressure. Mm. And so I think that I suffer a bit of a conflict between then saying gentle insistence, right? Or compulsion. And what I've ended up landing on a lot of the time is I deal in inevitability. That's what I usually try and explain to people when I'm talking about, you know, when we're going to get the dog to do something, I'll say, Hey, Make sure that dog understands when I say to do whatever, it's inevitable you're doing it, right? Now, whether that means depending on where we're at in training and how we're training, that might mean we're going to wait, right? We're going to, you know, in the instance of a sit, this is one of the things that we do, say, with bite work, right? So when we're going to, we've agitated the dog, we're going to mm. start bringing our obedience in, the dog knows a sit, we, we ask for a sit in the presence of the decoy, it's happening, right? And now with some dogs, I don't care if we're here for six hours, you'll sit eventually, right? Yep. Like of your own fruition, it will happen. 
And to an extent, that's compulsion as well because we've taken away all the other options and we're compelling the dog you're going to do it. Now, I haven't got my hands on you. I'm not going to push your ass into the ground or anything like that, but you're not doing anything else. We're mm. not leaving. I've told you to sit. You're not getting the bite that you want. You'll do it, right? And we all have to do that. Like that's how we're going to progress once you ask for these behaviors. But then the other is like maybe I will guide the dog into it, right? But I can still use the same language, right? Like it's inevitable. It's happening. Mm. And I tend to – I think maybe, maybe I don't – like maybe this is just me. I'm not sure whether this is – everybody feels the same way. But I think the word compulsion carries with it an element of urgency, right? So like when – if someone says to me like, you know, use compulsion, I feel like there's kind of saying force it to happen right now, right? But that's not the case. No, but it's that's, not the case. That's how it kind of feels a little bit. Maybe, maybe that's just me. I'd love to hear what other people think, right? But I think that's why I use that word. It's inevitable. He's doing it. Because you can still use incremental stages with compulsion. Like yeah. I said before with that Labrador. Exactly. You know, like I, there was no insistence on me that that dog had to have its elbows on the ground at the end of the lesson. Yeah. Quite clearly, I said, we will get to where we get to. We're going to take a step in the right direction. Right. And it was just incrementally working with the dog. I said, I think that if I tried to push the dog's elbows on the ground, I'll totally freak the dog yeah. out. Yeah. So, so that's exactly where I was trying to go with that, in that I think sometimes when we're talking about reinforcement, with positive reinforcement, people totally understand successive approximations, right? Mm. So, like, it's not what you want, but it's a step towards it. Click and reinforce, right? And I think maybe we leave out of the conversation a little bit that you can do the same with negative reinforcement. Hey, that's not exactly what you want, but it's mm. a step towards it. Take the pressure off. Let him understand that, that he's on the right track and have a little breather there. Because I think the risk with compulsion is that the dog fights back, mm-hmm. right, and offers I don't want to say defiance because he probably doesn't know what you're asking for at that point because he's still educating it, but like he offers pressure back at you when you try and put pressure on him. And of course, you then kind of release the pressure in a panic and then the dog learns, oh, that's how I turn it off, right? And the majority of people who would say or, or certainly observe that a prong collar can make a dog aggressive, of course it can because if, you, if the dog is about to display aggression, you start using the prong collar he displays the aggression that he was about to. You didn't really affect his behavior in any way, shape, or form. It was going to happen. And mm-hmm. then you stop using the prong collar. In future, you'll be able to start that aggression with the prong collar, right? Because he thought that he turned it off by doing it, or he noticed that he turned it off by displaying that aggression. So the issue with negative reinforcement is that we have it in our head that you have to keep it on until the behavior is complete. But it's not necessarily the case that it needs to be all the way till the behavior is complete. In fact, it can just be a step towards any yeah. sort, any form of progression. Yep. Anything that is towards what you want in the exact same way you would use positive reinforcement. You know, I'm going to teach a send away that I need the dog to run 100 meters ahead. Well, I'm not going to expect him to run 100 meters the first time, especially if I'm using like an indirect reward who's going to come back to me. Mm. It takes one step. I'm happy with that. Click, boom. Here you go, right? Tomorrow it'll be two, then it'll be three, then it'll be 10, then it'll be, you know, we build it up like that. And I think we kind of forget that with compulsion, we can do the exact same thing. Mm. And and that word compulsion can mean exactly that. It's totally interchangeable with insistence. It's totally interchangeable with guiding. You know, so these are the sorts of things we can guide the dog towards what we want. It doesn't have to be force the dog to do what we want right now, mm. right? And I think that's where people kind of get, 
stuck around those words. And the reason I can say I think that's how people get stuck around those words because I was, right? Like I totally was. When you emphasize the words like that, it's kind of like an all or nothing approach. Mm. That's the problem. That's where I think is people aren't incrementally looking at the stages in between. They're kind of thinking it is or it is not. There is no in between. Mm. The way that I've always looked at it, when I got to know it better and understand it, have like a holistic approach to it, was look at the incremental and the systematic approach in between the all or nothing approach. Because when most people are offended by something, they do seem to become very much all or nothing minded. Yeah. You know, where they're thinking, well, I don't really like it because you're forcing the dog, as you said, with that sense of urgency that you're just smashing the dog into the ground. No, it doesn't have to be like that at all. In fact, if you looked at this Labrador, because I'm going to go back to this dog as a case study. If you looked at this dog when I was working with the lure with it, because I wanted to see for myself what the dog would do for a lure. The problem was, is the dog fought back against the lure. Mm. So when I went to lure the dog down, it negatively reinforced itself out of that position and ran away from me. Mm. And that was the problem that I thought, fuck, he really doesn't like this. And now he's got an issue with me trying to lure him in a position. As soon as I did it with him, he sniffed down on the ground, but then when he looked up at me and realised, oh, you bastard, you're trying to get me to drop, he fucked off. Mm. He just pulled himself out of the situation. And I thought, that's interesting. Like a Labrador giving up on food that easy, was it's just phenomenal to see that. Like Mm. that's just a – that's a real unicorn moment to see that. Well, see, that's the power of avoidance, right? Because – Whatever it was that happened to him in that down. Whatever. No one knows. Who knows? Mm. Could be nothing. Could be some superstitious behavior that he has. No one knows. Uh, But his want or need to avoid that overpowered his want or need to get the positive reinforcement, to get the food that you were offering him Mm. in order to do it. And I think avoidance is, you know, like it's another one of those words, right? Like, Negative reinforcement is escape and avoidance training, right? Mm. And like, <laughs> what a fucking shitty pair of words to put together, right? And we're going to teach this dog to escape and then avoid. And it's like, you know, like it's accurate. That's exactly what we're doing. It's what happened. Right. Mm. But we're going to teach this dog to turn off and then what can we replace avoid with, right? We're going to teach this dog to turn off pressure mm-hmm. and then just stay away from it. Right, or never need to encounter it again. Yep. So we're just going to teach this dog to turn off this little bit of discomfort and or have limited discomfort pressure. Yeah, and then <laughs> and then and then limit his encounters with it in the future. And I think that the problem is, like you know, I face this strong conflict. You know, I've talked about it before between using the correct language and being able to convey my intent more accurately because I want to use a correct language. I want to do that. I don't want to have to dumb it down and change it and, you know, soften things. But the problem is sometimes when you're talking to people because of prior experiences, they have triggering words and it could be that they're, they will come around and they will be on board with you doing what you do, which is Eventually. why, yeah, no, but like if they saw you doing it, right away that's fine so that's what you know like that's why you know i put a lot of i've got a lot of content there's a lot of video of me training dogs out there right so that a big mission in my life in my career at the moment is to try and bring some cohesion to you know parts of the industry that are not cohesive Mm. and for me the in to people who don't want to accept that the way that i train is okay Mm. right is ethically and morally sound right the people who don't want to accept that I want to first show them me doing it 
So then they can go, oh, like, I'm okay with that. I haven't seen anything there that's a problem, mm. right? And for the most part, that's how most people, like, who I interact with on that level, that's how they go. But even then, when I'm describing what they saw, if I use the wrong words, which some often are the scientifically accurate words, that can be the end, yep. right? Like, that can be a, a war stopper for us where it's like, nah, you said compulsion, I can't continue to listen to you. Right. I have to fight back against that because my programming tells me that I I'm anti-compulsion. I'm like, Hey, but you just saw me do it and you're okay with it. That's not compulsion. And it's like, but it is. Yeah. Mm. So there, there's this real issue. That's this real conflict that I face between using the correct language versus accurately conveying my intent. Right. <laughs> Again, while you've been using these types of words, I saw a young lady talking to me one day about how she despises people who use compulsion. Mm -hmm. She actually used the word compulsion. She said, I don't like it, don't like the word, and I don't like the physical action of it. And I said, oh, cool, fair enough. Horses for courses, whatever. You do you, I'll do me. And she knew that I talk about compulsion and I teach it and so forth. And I think it was a bit of an initial joust at me. Didn't care. And I said, oh, what does your dog do? And it was usually my leading question, show me your dog. So she said, oh, yeah, my dog does this. And she, and I said, how's your dog's drop and everything like that? Just curious to see. Natural curiosity. And she said, oh, yeah. So she was luring her dog down. And then she put her dog, her hand on the top of the dog's shoulder blades. I said, that's interesting. What are you doing there? And she goes, oh, it's not what you think. I'm just guiding the dog down. <laughs> with It just helps the dog to understand. And I said, that's compulsion. And she said, oh, no, it's not. Yeah. No, it's not. And I said, unfortunately, it is. That is compulsion. I said, you can sugarcoat that and you can wrap a little ribbon on that and you can do whatever you want to. You can change the language to suit your preferences. And I said, but I'm telling you now, if you go to any scholar on the planet and say to them, I put my hand on the dog's shoulder blades while the dog was going into position, is that compulsion? I said, anybody who's worth their salt will say, Unfortunately, that's compulsion. Yeah. It's a form of. It's still a form of because once you put your hand on top of the dog, you are putting physical pressure on the dog. And she was saying, oh, no, 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 there's no physical pressure there. It's just there to rest on the dog's shoulders. So I'm just guiding the dog. I said, yeah, but guidance comes up. Like it's part of the wordplay that comes under the umbrella of compulsion. Yeah. But when people just want to be willfully ignorant about that, sometimes there's nothing you can do. They just. Yeah, you know, of they, course. They have that deliberate, as you said, they have that deliberate aversion or avoidance around the words. They don't want to hear it. It's like poison to their Yeah, ears. and, and I, like I think we should acknowledge that it's not that they don't want to hear it. It's that they Offends can't. Them. Like it, and it's because of an experience, right? Mm. So like it's they watch the hat or the ponytail swinging a dog around by the fucking, by the <laughs> leash yeah. and, and going, I oh, just got to. Use some compulsion while I'm fucking swinging him around on a prong collar. Yeah, I get it. I understand that. And that's why at times we've talked about distancing ourselves from the persona of being a balanced trainer because there are so many balanced trainers who poison the well. Yeah, not so many. It only takes one. That's it. Yeah. Like it only takes one with a bunch of videos out there mm. that then fucks it up. So anyway, what can you do? Yes, you can just talk about that, it. But like that's this. right. I mean, you can educate and you can yeah. just say, look, there's always a bad guy out there or always a bad person out yeah. there. You want to be politically correct. There's always a bad person out there who's doing bad shit. Yeah. And they will fly that flag. I mean, I could give you so many case examples of physical times I've seen people who live under the plus R. They avidly protect and fight under that banner of being a plus R trainer. And yet I've seen them do some of the most heinous physical things to their dogs when they think nobody is around and nobody's watching. Yeah. It gets done. Yeah. And then people would say, well, show me the proof. 
the unfortunate thing is you don't always have a camera phone on you for those convenient moments. Otherwise, you would blow the whistle on them and say, you, sir, are a fraud. Mm. You're an absolute fraud. Yeah. This is not about exposing all the frauds out there because they are out there, but it is talking about concept that people do get a little bit toey about, which is compulsion. Yeah. You don't need to be toey about it. You can use it quite diligently and you can use it for the benefit of the dog. Yeah. But I think, yeah, no, you're dead right. But like I say, I think I have resolved to not use that word if I think that that's going to put up a barrier. Mm. And ultimately I want to sort of be talking to someone and go, hey, this is what I do, this is how I'm going to do it. And specifically, like this is how I'm going to put my hand here. I'm going to guide him down the leash this way. And they're like, oh, that's fine. And then you go, yeah, like, you know, I'm going to deal in the inevitable. That's one of the that's one of the catch cries I regularly use. Hey, I'm going to deal in the inevitable. I'm going to wait till he does it. I might help him, help him get it right. Mm. And if we want to, we could call that compulsion. And then that's when people go, oh, shit, I already agreed to it. And then you just said that's compulsion and that can soften their feelings about that word compulsion, right? Because like we know this, this yeah. is this is like how conditioning yep. works. Mm. We put the new signal in front of the old signal, right? If you go the old signal first, they don't even hear the new signal, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's how you got to kind of frame it when you want to have those conversations. Because I don't think for the most part, the way me and you train, no real dog trainer is going to have an issue with it, right? Mm. Of course, there's going to be people who have issues with it, but- they're not worth talking to, right? Like they're not real dog trainers. Well, this in everything that happens, you look at comments that people write on everything that's online, Facebook and Instagram and all these social media platforms are the anthropology of studying what people do, like watching how people respond, like all of the things that are happening with the protests, all the things that happen with the varying interactions with police or political and the comments that people write in between. You know, like it's amazing to see how far people will take their comments on things, like the varying degrees of total support to absolute fucking anarchy at the other end. Yeah. The same has existed in the dog training fraternity for, oh, you know, man, it's everywhere. It's, it, it's existed in the time frame that I've been in there and people that have told me before I got involved in it, even before social media was a thing, you know, like it was people drove down to your field to come and abuse you and stuff like that. Like yeah. it was full on. It's always been full. It's just the way that people are. They we just can't agree to agree all agree to agree with things from time to time. But I just ha- I do have to say something that when you were your explanation before on not creating trigger points with people and not creating that system of conflict with people unnecessarily, I agree with you on that. Like I absolutely think you hit the nail on the head with something because I th- it's something that I am encouraging of staff at work. Let's say for example we get a spicy client. They're a little bit agitated by something that's happened. Rather than use a word that we know that's going to trigger them in our response to them, we think about the response that we're going to put together. So the email or the response or the phone call is constructed in a way where if we know this is going to be a trigger point, all it's going to do is escalate a situation. So there's no point in matching spicy with spicy and trying to outspice each other. It's just going to turn into a fucking shit situation it's Mm. a shit sandwich so the best thing you can do is like sit there and analyze it and think you're right like you're right what you said before there are times where you think i really want to fight it just because i've got fight in me over it but when you think to yourself and without making this sound like a derogatory comment because it's making me think of an old saying that was told to me as a young guy that when you argue with an idiot from afar it's hard to tell who's the idiot yeah I don't want people to hear that out there and think, oh, now you're saying I'm an idiot because I don't like using compulsion. It's nothing to do with that at all. What it is to do with is, (laughs) what it is to do with is 
you just have to understand that sometimes people are already emotional about something. You also said this earlier on in this conversation where you said it's a trigger point where they've had a bad relationship with it, the word, for some reason, and now it conjures up a lot of thoughts. So I guess when you're being a considerate person and you are being a little bit kind and thoughtful, when you look at those aspects, you've got to think to yourself, well, what's the point of making this worse than it actually is? How do we move past this and improve the situation? Like I said, I do agree with you. We've had to go through that whole system before. Words are just fucking stupid sounds you make with your mouth, yeah, right? Yeah, it's vibrations for that come s- out of your larynx. For someone to have a problem with a particular word and have that be a barrier to them able to listen to, there has to have been an instance that caused that. There has to have been. Well, because we know there is. That's right. So, like, yeah. nobody gives a fuck about, like, you can make any kind of fart noise out your face that you want, right? Yeah. Unless an action follows that, that is, you know, something you don't like, you're not going to have an issue with the word, right? Yep. No matter what the word is. <laughs> right? And so that's what I mean. When someone's, as soon as you say, hey, I'm going to use a prong call, and people are like, nope, fuck you, you're a piece of shit. It's like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Something has led to you feeling that way, right? Mm. There has to be something that caused that. So let's unpack that a little bit or let's avoid even talking about it. If that means I'm going to use a different word or whatever to avoid hitting that trigger point, that's fine. But we're going to get there eventually. Mm. But I can totally accept that you've got a reason for being that way because it doesn't happen in a vacuum. There has to have been a reason people feel that way about something. And then what unfortunately we see quite a lot is then because you hit that opposition point, you then double down on it and reinforce for them that they're right to think that people who would use a prong collar are Mm. bad people, right? Because, you know, they say, hey, I would use a prong collar. Oh, I would never use a prong collar and anyone does a piece of shit. Well, fuck you. Okay, well, that's the end of that, right? I Mm. just sort of like – just. That interaction went exactly how we thought it was going to be and we're going to continue disliking each other and going our opposite ways, right? And that is going to predict the next interaction that we'll have with a similar person, Mm. right? That's one of the things that is really amazing to me is we're expert. So many people in this industry are fucking expert at reading behavior and manipulating it in dogs, but cannot shit with people cannot do it with people Mm. cannot and it's like hey man you know all those principles we can use them on people yeah but we've talked about this before where we've said that people in this industry generally running from other people like they've they've given up on uh, interacting with people only to interact with people which is crazy but in some ways you have to break the cycle some way you've got to de-spice the spiciness that's coming up for no reason yeah hey i was gonna say before before we wrap up Mm. I thought that dog training groups on Facebook were just hives of mean people being mean to each other. Mm. Join some camera groups, mate. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's any bad. group. Yeah. Dude, I watched the guy get fucking roasted today for asking a question that I got roasted for in the same group. Yep. <laughs> the same group, like not even 12 months ago. You should see mycology groups with Paul Stamets. Oh, my yeah. God. Oh, they hate him. I'm in that one, yeah. <laughs> but so, like, one of the things, and, mate, people lose their minds about this, right? So, uh, one of the, the camera I have is an R5. It's a Canon R5. It's a very high-end camera. Thank, thank you, Patreon. Thank you, Patreon. Love you, yes. right? And I use the fuck out of that camera. Yep, you it's do. amazing, you do. right? You do. But it's a very high-end camera. Mm. And it's a professional camera. This is my, my little story. So when you look at the tutorials on the different frame rates that it has, you're usually watching an American give those frame rate tutorials, right? Yep. 
And mine had different frame rates. So I'm looking at the thing and they've got 23.9, they've got 24, they've got 60, they've got 120. I look at mine, mine's got 25, 50, and 100. I'm like, I've got a counterfeit camera. What the oh, fuck? Oh, you pal and NTSC. I didn't know the difference between those things. Oh, so right. I, yeah, yeah. I commented in the group, I'm yeah. like, hey, I don't understand here because like my camera, you guys are, you guys have got these frame rates and I've got this frame rate. I don't understand what the fuck's going on. Have I got the wrong camera? Like what's oh, going on? Oh, you stupid fuck. Oh, mate, they <laughs> fucking murdered me. Like hundreds of people. See, even I knew that. Hundreds of people abusing the <laughs> shit out of me about not knowing the difference between NTSC and PAL and that yep. there's a setting that you can change to make the different things and it affects light frequencies and whatever. Yep. Well, actually, if you jump into Patreon and you have a look at the video, the IGP video that I did, it largely doesn't matter unless you're under fluorescent lights. Yeah, because right? it has a flicker rate. Yeah, yeah, so if you look at the IGP video I did, because I was like, well, I want to be like all the cool kids and use NTSC, which we shouldn't use in Australia. Yep. So when I'm filming at night... And in slow motion, there's this fucking flicker on it. If yep. you look at that video that when I went training with Michelle at night, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. It's terrible footage because I was in the wrong fucking setting. Anyway, so that I got mate, I got roasted for not knowing that. You, how dare you own this camera and not know that's week one, day one shit. How dare you not know that shit? How dare you? And I was like, oh yeah, how dare I, right? And so I'm like, oh fuck, sorry guys, right? Like, calm down, fuck. Anyway, <laughs> I saw a guy ask the same thing today in the same group. Oh yeah. I PM'd him. He never saw the message because I was like, dude, you're about to get roasted. Here's the answer. Right? Yep. Like, but stand by. Nah, he got fucking hammered again. Yep. Uh, so that's Facebook. That's what people do. That's regardless of whether it's dogs or cameras or probably guitars or fucking anything yeah, it's, else. It's, it's literally everything. Like I said, it's really a study on human behavior and you know. humans being mean to other humans because mm. they're not face to face. Yes. Incredibly. It reminds me of that meme that Mike Tyson put out where he said people have got very comfortable with being shit to each other, whereas in a normal situation they'd get punched in the mouth. Yeah. yeah. I saw a tattoo the other day called the Triple Mike, yep. and it was Michael Jackson wearing a Chicago Bulls singlet with a 23 on it yep. with the Mike Tyson tattoo oh, on his nice. face. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Triple Mike. Triple Mike, Mike. yeah. <laughs> Nice, nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. Mm -hmm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. But the best way that you can help spread the message of the show is to tell a friend in real life. Christmas is coming up. You're about to be at your family's home. You're going to be amongst a group of people probably. What you should do is around the dinner table at Christmas dinner, Tell everybody, hey, guys. If you care about me, if you love me. <laughs> if you love me, <laughs> you will listen to the Canine Paradise. And, and throw money into their Patreon yep. account. Yeah. Yep. And you could tell your friends and family, no gifts for me. No, please. just put it all into Pat and Glenn's Patreon account. Because <laughs> Pat needs another camera. Yeah. DJI just brought Those out fucking a new- lenses. Are, oh, yeah, the, the, the D- DJI thing. DJI yeah. just brought out the ultimate cinema camera and yep. Pat wants it. Uncle Patty wants his- <laughs> <laughs> Once he's it's, super cinema. It's it's so ridiculous. Hey, I gotta tell you something, what Pat does, and it's very clever. He will send me a message and he will show me a new bit of technology. <laughs> and he'll go, Oh, check this out. What do you reckon? It's so cool, isn't it? 
That's code for I want this. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen any reviews on this? What do you think of this? That's how I outplay Narelle with the guitars, but she's always one step ahead of me and go, why do you yeah. fucking need another guitar? Well, I mean, there is an element of that, but I genuinely want your opinion. I know that you're a, a detailed researcher also. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just... I agree with you, and I think that the gear that you get... I know that when you've looked at something, like you've done incredible hours of research... Mostly. ...in both the physical attributes and the technical attributes of it before you actually go ahead and get it. One good thing about that is that you just don't do whimsical purchases and go out and buy something... No, I mean, there's a lot of money in it, like I want to... But it's the same as this, like all, you know, like our setups here, you know. It's things that we've studied and read all the research and done... Hours and hours and hours of making sure that what we're going to actually get is going to complement our output. I think one thing, you know, we talked about Patreon at the start of the show, mm. but like I feel very accountable to those Patreon Absolutely. subscribers. Yeah. And like every time we spend any money of that, I'm like, is this adding value to the show? Yeah. Right. Like, you know, every time you buy, like got that R5 and three lenses for it. And before you buy every lens, I was like, Am I adding value? Do you need it? Yeah. Like, do you need it or can you do without it? Yeah. But then, you know, like when you've told me about shots that you need to do and you've showed me examples, I thought, no, you absolutely do. Yeah, it changes everything, yeah. right? And it's yeah. like, yeah, you know, that's the quality that we're trying to achieve. Mm. And anyway, so Patreon, we appreciate you so very, very much. Yeah. If you're not already in there, you could jump in there. We got a beautiful message from someone during the week saying that they upped their Patreon tier just because of uh, an episode that we did. Yep. Not because of the content within the Patreon, but because an episode that we did was so shareable and helped mm-hmm. them in their daily job. And, you know, they're referring that episode to clients to understand it. So much appreciated when mm. people do that. If you want to do that, you can jump into Patreon. It's like three bucks a month or you can give 10 and that gets access to the live streams and you could give as much as you want, to be honest. If you wanted to buy me a Lamborghini, that's fine too. Do you really want a Lamborghini? I don't, no. I was out riding the other day and I saw somebody getting into a Lamborghini and it just looked really uncomfortable and Mm. really impractical. Yeah. I remember when I was a young kid and I thought it would be so cool to have a Lamborghini because I remember an old quote from Frank Sinatra and he said, when you've really made it, you know you're driving a Lamborghini. Yeah, and right. it, you know, And I thought, yeah, you, you would. But now I look at them and I think I love them. Like they're cool. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's not that Aesop's fable about the grapes at the top being, yeah, you yeah. know, unreachable. Therefore, they must be sour. Yeah. Like I'd love a, I'd love to ride around a Lamborghini, but I just think I'd be paranoid about taking it anywhere. Yeah. You'd probably do like a weekend circuit and so forth, but- Where's the practicality in it? Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, they make a four-wheel drive now. They make a- Well, there you go. My brother has There one. you go. That Mercedes four-wheel drive that they've got out, it's about 350K. G-Wagon. Oh, that's, G-Wagon, G-Wagon. That's a beefy Mercedes. I actually like that. That's yeah, got a I really, don't the G-Wagon. I'm not you don't a fan. like it? Nah, it's just so military. We had them in the army. So sassy. Yeah. I nearly filmed a thing. Of, my brother is a car guy, right? Yep. Big time. Big time car guy. Yep. Uh, he's got three Lamborghinis and- I wanted to get a video of me getting out of it and being like, thank you, Patreon. (laughs) Someone bought me this camera that I'm filming me get out of this Lamborghini. (laughs) But I didn't do it. Maria's dad, who Maria is my boss, her dad owns Scudia Graziani Mm. in Sydney city. And uh, he's got prestige cars all through there. So when Dave and I need to go into the city for meetings, we use his boardroom there and he's got beautiful cars all around him. And Yeah. I'm not a car guy, to be honest. I could give a fuck. If you could get any car, like no budget, get any car, what are you getting? Bentley. Really? Yeah. Why? I like a Bentley. It looks classy. The particular Bentley, like it's absolutely fucking hammers mm. and it's a, it's a real classy looking car. Mm. Yeah. 
comfortable, luxurious, plenty of grunt. Mm. Yeah, it's the car that I really like. Mm. Yourself? Probably a Sprinter van. (laughs) (laughs) I could give a fuck. Yeah. No, like- Of um, any choice, you'd go for a Sprinter van. Probably a Tesla Model X. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like those. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not, I just don't really give a shit. Yeah. It's just for getting around in. Uh, you know, I used to have a cool Mustang, but it's so impractical. It's mm. just a pain in the ass. You know, one day when our Patreons build us up enough, like when they go out and tell all their friends and their friends tell their friends and At so Christmas. on and so on, yeah. maybe we'll get our own lab like Linus did in Linus Tech Tips. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we aim for the whisper room first. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Studio incrementally build our way up. Yeah. So you've heard how we're going to spend the money on Patreon. (laughs) Uh, Another way, (laughs) another way is to buy t-shirts, man. Yes. Uh, Bite Sports Curious is pretty much ready to rock. Jane ended up making a like a sweet logo. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's cool. So whether we then maybe put like a shirt that it's like a breast, you know, like an over the heart logo, and then someone else's big thing on the back, I I don't know. Mm. Uh, Or maybe put them. You could do a whole run of them. Whatever. Yeah. Um, Bite Sports Curious coming out. The Curious George one that, that- Yeah, we can't use we it. We can't use it because, I mean- We'll get sued. I, we loved it. We Both of us loved it. And I thought, oof, that would probably put us on the radar. Yeah. Mm. We have copyright problems. Like, for people who don't know, especially within the podcasting space, there's big issues around copywriting. Oh, that's yeah. one of the Mate, that's one of the issues I've had trying to do docos. And when you're filming people talking, if there's even fucking music playing in the background- YouTube will YouTube block you. YouTube just smashes you. Yeah. You're like, nope, can't put it up. Yep. That's very frustrating. Mm. So that might be the the end of the Curious George one. Yeah. But we could be Bite Sports Curious. We just can't be Bite Sports Curious George. Yes. All right. So get some cool merch. Yep. If you want to get in contact with us, jump in the Facebook group. That's plodding along, doing yep. pretty good in there. No many uh, people in there. It's good. No many, many bobinis. Or if yep. they are, they keep their mouth shut. Yep. If you want to contact us, mm-hmm. you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanonparadigm.com. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>